The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. This week, Time Magazine's Molly Ball, Alyssa Mastermonico, and Megan Gailey join me to tackle the following questions. Is the secret to why Nancy Pelosi is such an effective speaker chocolate ice cream for breakfast? Could COVID-19 reshape the electoral map in a good way? What makes truly bad advice and why are we so susceptible to it? All this and more right now. Welcome to another Groundhog Day of the COVID-19 pandemic. Same as yesterday, same as tomorrow. So here's the entirety of my creative output from this week. It's a joke. And the joke is, what do you call food that is only pretending to be Italian? Impasta. Okay, now let's move on to calling my friend, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff under President Obama and honorary member of the Ingalls family, Alyssa Mastermonico. Hey, Alyssa. Well, hello, Aaron. <laughs> I hear a lawnmower in the background. I swear to fucking God, I don't know what to do about it. It'll be gone soon. It sounds like, you know what it sounds like is like, have you ever seen Midsummer? Probably not. It's like no, that, that no. Ho- the horror movie where they do all kinds of bad stuff. Um, it's uh, It sounds like a kind of ceremonial chanting in the background from Midsummer. <laughs> It's, I mean, I don't watch horror movies, but believe me, when I heard the lawnmower this morning, it was horrific. It's like, (laughs) I actually think we might be at the weed whacker phase of things. Oh, nice. Nice. The weed whacker phase is, uh, phase two of phase two. two. Um, so Alyssa, I had a rare moment of, uh, optimism this week. I had to, I had to look for the word optimism because I was like, what does it mean? Feeling not bad. And an optimism. Uh, Urban dictionary, that one, please. Yeah, I know. Optimism? Is it with a long O? Um, (laughs) So I've been seeing a lot of articles recently kind of lamenting the death of the American city in the era of COVID. And the reason that they think that the city will not be able to be sustainable as it is is because they're basically pandemics waiting to happen. You put a lot of people in a lot of small spaces and you you unleash a disease that where there's no cure and it's viral. And it, it just means that we're going to have cities will be in comas for two years at a time every time we have a pandemic that is a viral pandemic like this. But that got me thinking, as people are leaving cities, they're clearly going somewhere. So what happens next? And I wanted to talk today about a possible optimistic interpretation of what will happen when people start leaving cities and moving to other places. So Alyssa, would you like to take it from here? So Aaron, we have talked about this. We, it was like a spark yesterday when we were talking about it, we were like, wait, fuck, could this 
be okay. And when we were talking, it's like, here's the thing. The cities that are still under the strictest lockdowns right now are the most populated cities and, and the ones with intense density. And because of that density, they are going to open up much slower than many other parts of their states. So specifically New York City and Los Angeles, where we both live. And the thing about it is, is that other parts of the state are opening up. And it does make sense that for so many people who aren't totally reliant on the city itself, that they would maybe start going other places so they too can sort of start getting back to things. Um, And on top of that, what we've learned, uh, you know, Twitter just announced yesterday that they're letting people work from home, their employees work from home forever because they have found, and so many other companies have found, that people are very productive uh, when they're at home, when they don't have to commute. And so, Erin, what if... What if? People could do their jobs, support smaller communities, have fresher air and more space to walk and think... Because of this, what if people post-pandemic or mid-pandemic start realizing that maybe there is life outside of cities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if the death of the city is actually a slow move toward the resurrection of the small city or the small town? Um, As somebody from a small town, and Alyssa, you're in a small town right now, um, small towns died because of, a, for a bunch of different reasons, among them brain drain to the cities, um, and brain drain to the cities happened because you have to be in cities to work for companies that are based in cities in a lot of cases. But if, when that goes away, you know, why would you pay Manhattan prices if you can live a Pennsylvania life? If you want to have a family, why would you, you know, kill yourself in order to just stay, keep your head above water in a place that that's like San Francisco, when you can work for a company in San Francisco from Colorado. That made me think that what if people, what if people start moving away from big cities because they're able to do their jobs from wherever they want and they start just living wherever they want. They start living closer to their families or in parts of the country where they maybe have more access to the outdoors. Um, what would a town that actually provides all the day-to-day needs for people look like? And here was my other question, Alyssa, since you're the person who's worked in politics, what would that do to the electoral map? Oh, it seems like it would backfire the fuck all over Mitch McConnell, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and people, I mean, look, here's like, I live in Columbia County in uh, New York 19, which is, I think, one of the top 10 most rural districts in the country. And there are a lot of people here now that have left the city. And like one thing too, when we talk about cities, we love cities, lived in New York city for a very long time. I'm very sad about what's happening, but here's the thing that I think both all major cities have experienced in that they have experienced this growth, but the infrastructure hasn't kept up. So for example, I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for a long time. And the L train, which was the only way really to get to Manhattan, was already falling apart, always broken down, like couldn't take all the people that needed to um, get on the train every day to get over to Manhattan. 
but like before they ever thought to fix the trains, they had already permitted tons of high rise buildings that were only going to put greater stress on the system. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it relieves the stress that's on the system that no one's been able to fix. And like, let's be clear, the money that states are going to get to deal with the pandemic aren't going to be to build better subways in the city. This is going to be literally to give people the fucking money to get back up on their feet. And so if people left the cities, if people were moving out past the suburbs into much more rural places, one, cities are much bluer than the more rural areas are. And so if if we city people start moving very respectfully, okay, being a dickhead city person in the country is not yeah, good either. We're not this talking like a dickhead city person. Yeah, we're not talking like '90s Disney stepmom type here. We're talking. No, we're talking, no, we're talking like about fucking community members. Community members. community members. Come back and be a part and, of a community. Right, and so I just think that we would end up. It, you would literally destroy the gerrymandering that people have tried to do over the years, and you might end up with bluish lavender in more rural areas as opposed to deep, dark Trump mega red. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I'm not, and and I don't want to pretend that the movement of people from the cities to rural areas or smaller places wouldn't put strain on those places. And, you know, I think maybe places like that, if this pandemic does stretch past, you know, fall, uh, places like that should probably be proactive about considering how to zone and, and deal with an influx of people. Um, and, but I think that there's something to be said for, uh, living in a smaller community. I think a lot about, um, the way that my town was like two generations ago. And it was like, you could get everything you needed in the town. There was like a clothing store and a grocery store and a shoe store and a place to buy gardening supplies and a hardware store where you could get the basics. There was, uh, there was an active like business district within the town. So you could work there. I think that the urban rural divide totally changing because of this would be really interesting because it would now be a divide between people who work in the physical space where they live and people who telecommute. So it would be like the telecommute divide, which would be a a super interesting thing to think about. Um, But yeah, I just, I know that there's been a lot of doom and gloom about this. And I was reading an article today about how like restaurants will change if, mm-hmm. if they open up again and I, it just was the most depressing thing ever. And I thought, I thought what, you know, there are possible good outcomes like to people going back to less dense areas and becoming parts of communities. And I, I think that it could actually be something that maybe 10, 20 years down the line, we look back on and can see positive things coming out of it. I'm just, I don't want to Pollyanna. I'm just looking for something to feel good. No, it's not a Pollyanna, but it's like, think about the things, how stressed everybody is. Think about, I mean, there has to be, I think at some point, a reset in the post BlackBerry iPhone world, right? Where there was no delineation between home and work. And so maybe this is actually the way to make that more viable, more, more livable. I mean, cause if you're up here, if you're, if you're not in a city, you're probably paying less for rent or for your mortgage. Mm-hmm. You're probably paying less, you know, my tank of gas in my Subaru is less than my Uber from Tribeca to my gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to, you actually, if you do move, if you do live in a place that's not as expensive, 
you can just, you can actually work less if you want to and have a richer, more diverse life potentially. Yeah. And like a lot of millennials make decisions about whether or not to have families based on the cost of living where they live. And they're sort of in a shitty situation where it's like, look, I live in a place that's super expensive because I have to, because that's where my job is. But because I live there, I can't have a family because I have student loan debt so that I could get the job that forced me to live in this expensive city. Like what, you know, this feels like a little bit of an escape valve. If you're somebody who's lucky enough to work in a place that is allowing you to telecommute and there will be more places. Uh, I've heard rumors of like big Hollywood places going uh, virtual for people who work in offices there. Um, if that be, if you become one of those people who works in a place that's a virtual office, then you can live anywhere. And that totally frees you in certain ways that had sort of like chained you before. So that's a good thing. It is a good thing. And you know, the other thing too, is that I think that, you know, you started the segment with the word optimism. And I think that sometimes leave, living in cities where there's such competition, where you, you always feel like you just can't get ahead, does lead to a certain element of pessimism. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing, like, so up here, things are, of course, closed down. Everything's following the guidelines uh, for New York pause. Um, but you go places and they're open you know, the doors are open. They're not closed. So you never touch a doorknob and everything's on the honor system. So many things are on the honor system, getting your eggs. Mrs. Eager has her rhubarb out on the honor system. You know, the, the, uh, flower grower down the street, you can go in and, and more often than not, you see people leave more money, not try to steal from the box, you know, if they can't make perfect change. And I just, you know, I, it, it's heartening. You're like, fuck, everyone is, it feels a lot, I think, like everybody is in it together. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like a nice feeling. I think when you live in an established community, it feels like everybody is more accountable to each other. And you, you can find that within cities, like, you know, our neighborhood in Los Angeles feels like very much like a community. So, you know, I, we know everybody and say hi and stuff like that. Um, but I think in small towns, it's a little bit more, it's a little, it forms a little bit more easily than in a, in a big city that like seeks to anonymize. Um, but I mean, again, I would, you know, if, I bet we have city planners who listen cause we have like a whole rainbow of nerds who listen. And if we well, and they should send us information because this is just something you and I were talking about. We're clearly not like experts, but we just think this is an interesting concept. So if people have ideas, they should send them to us. Like either we're very right or very wrong. Yeah. I would love to know. I would love to know too, because how embarrassing to be very wrong and how fun to be very right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, we could kind of use a very right right now, but like, I would take wrong. I'm cool. We all have thoughts. We're just sharing I'm them. Fine. If we're wrong, we're wrong. I'm just happy that I had this moment of happiness. Um, let's quick move into the a quick toast and roast. I don't want to be a toast and roast hog. <laughs> what a weird... But why don't you? I will be a toast and roast hog this week. I just have a quick toast and a quick roast. I want to toast the uh, three female members of the press corps uh, this week, Waija Zhang, Yamiche Alcindor, and Caitlin Collins, who teamed up to cause Donald Trump to uh, throw a big fit and storm out of a press conference. Um, he is afraid of women who stand up to him. He's afraid of Nancy Pelosi. He's afraid of, uh, of female members of the press. He's afraid of powerful women who are in Congress. And this week we got to see three women of the press corps kind of like confront him and actually allow the confrontation to happen. And we saw him leave and it, and it was a really bad look for him. I'm sure 
Um, you know, I'm sure the people who would drink bleach for him thought it was cool, but anybody with half a brain who saw that saw who, who came out looking better of that confrontation. You mean that he looked like a pussy? Yeah, he looked like, I mean, to reuse the old joke, pussies are, you know, he lacks the depth and warmth of a pussy. Uh, <laughs> he looks like, a, he looks like a real wimp. He looks like a real child and, uh, they looked cool. Yajia Zhang looked when she removed her face mask and was like, why are you telling me to ask China? It does make you think that three women who were simply asking a very reasonable question caused him to fold and run in that matter. Like, let's think about what's going on in those calls with Putin and President Xi. Yeah. And what was what was happening with uh, his with his best friend, Kim Jong-un? You know what? Exactly. He, he can't stand anybody standing up to him. And uh, especially if those people are women. And so toast to them. OK, here's my roast. And I bet you could see this one coming. Here's my roast. Here's my roast. <laughs> that is also a little bit of a roast of me because uh, new information has come to light. Uh, Alison Roman, a uh, person who makes recipes that I have cooked and enjoyed, acted like a jerk in an interview where she singled out two Asian women who are successful and had product lines as somehow being sellouts when she was talking about her own product line. And I was kind of looking at the the Twitter blow up, rightful blow up after that interview um, was published last week. And a lot of people were pointing out that she kind of has a kind of appropriate attitude and, and has, has said things that were kind of awful in the past. And I feel like, you know, there's other food that I can eat. There are other recipes that I can cook. And so unfortunately I'm, I'm roasting Alison Roman and I'm not going to be having it for dinner. Boom. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Yep. I mean, it is also for me when I was, when I was reading the controversy, it was amazing because last week, you had list literally I know. put Christy Teigen in your VP fantasy football league. So it was no, it was no surprise to me that Alice Roman got on the bad side of you. I was just like, look, I don't care how delicious those chickpeas are on a sheet pan. You don't, don't come for my president, Christy Teigen. Also Marie Kondo don't. would be a really good VP candidate. <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, she cleaned that shit up. She there was is just, uh, it was just, and you know, for me, the thing at first I'm like, Oh, this is stupid. And then she like fake apologized where she's like, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. You're hurt by what I said, which is not an apology. And then she came out with this opus that felt very workshopped if you ask me, but, uh, you know, more power to her. Look, times are bad but not as bad as last week was for Alison Roman's publicist. Agree. Agree. And now we have a treat for you. Uh, one of my favorite political writers who just wrote a book on one of my favorite political figures. It's Molly Ball. She is a political correspondent with Time Magazine and a CNN analyst. One of my favorite faces to see on cable news. She's always got something smart to say and her writing is great. And her book on Pelosi is extremely absorbing. So excited that she's here to talk about it with us right now. Molly Ball, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first and foremost, there's a lot in this book. So tell us about the process of writing this book. How much time did you spend with the speaker? Um, were people 
eager to talk about her? Was there a connective thread in what most people wanted to talk to you about? Yeah. Um, so I started writing about Nancy Pelosi a couple of years ago when I was assigned to profile her for Time Magazine, and the book grew out of that. So in the course of the profile, I did a lot of research and sat down with the speaker. Uh, the first time I met with her, we went to uh, Little Italy in Baltimore, where she grew up. And even though it was January and 20 degrees out, she had chocolate ice cream for breakfast which was a pretty appropriate uh, <laughs> introduction to some of her quirks. Um, so I knew her for that. And then when the book uh, developed out of that profile, I also interviewed her several times for the book uh, and for other articles in time. So I've spent quite a bit of time with her and I've also spent a bit of time, you know, following her around and observing her in public as you do with uh, public figures that you cover uh, and talking to a lot of people from various phases of her career, right? Her childhood, her early career before she went into politics and then all of the phases of her congressional career, which has now also been quite a while. Um, and. I wouldn't say they all said the same thing, but one common theme for sure was that they felt like in retrospect, they had underappreciated her or in the current moment, they felt like she was underappreciated as the sort of historic figure most people are confident she'll become. Mm -hmm. Molly, I have to say first, uh, talking about chocolate ice cream, when Rahm Emanuel was White House chief of staff. I was in charge of chocolate croissants whenever the speaker was mad at us. So I was very well acquainted with her <laughs> chocolate. He'd be like, honey, honey, get the croissants. Um, so one in reading. And was it, that frequently? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, we were like regulars at fire and whatever that place was on the Hill. Um, so one, I did not know that she was groomed to be a nun. Um, did you go into writing this with any sort of point of view and what was the most surprising or shocking thing you learned about her in your, uh, in your research? Uh, I wouldn't say when, I mean, having written the profile, I sort of had a point of view coming into the book, going into the profile. I think I was surprised and did have my preconceptions challenged because, you know, she has been, uh, caricatured is as such a sort of stock figure, whether you're talking about the Republican ads or even, you know, a lot of Democrats angst about her, particularly before the 2018 midterms, almost all the sort of public narrative about her was that she was sort of a burden, this, this, you know, pastor prime figure who refused to get out of the way. And what is she still doing there? And so I think more than anything, what surprised me was just, uh, her underappreciated strengths, how good she is at her job of leading the house and how little focus there is on that quality in her public image, considering that that is her job. Uh, and yet all anybody seems to talk about is sort of their, their perceptions of her that have nothing to do with how good she is at, at running the house. It's about, you know, Oh, you know, everybody, everybody hates her. She's so polarizing. She's in all these, ads. but what does that have to do with her actual job? And I think, uh, as a political reporter, I, especially covering Congress, there's just so few people who seem to have any idea how to do the job, uh, that it was very eye-opening to see uh, how incredibly adept she is at that. Mm -hmm. We don't normally do this, but I'm going to read a paragraph aloud because I think this is one of the more interesting paragraphs I've ever read about the speaker. She didn't become a nun, 
but nor did she join the bra burners and dropouts and establishment smashers of her generation. Her rebellion was a quieter one. She attended the March on Washington. She left before MLK Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in order to prepare for her upcoming wedding. While some were burning draft cards during Vietnam, she was pushing a stroller around her upscale NYC neighborhood, slipping Democratic leaflets under apartment doors while her husband, a banker, put in long hours at the office. When violent riots broke out at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, Pelosi was not with the protesters, but inside the convention hall watching her father and brother cast their delegate votes. But her seeming conventionality was camouflaged for a revolutionary soul, one that would defy stereotype and history to achieve something no woman had ever before. So can you talk a little bit about the idea that her conventionality was camouflaged for revolution? And what are some moments or achievements in her life that really reflect this idea? Yeah, I mean, I think she's a really interesting combination of sort of, you know, liberal values, liberal ideology, but a deep loyalty to the party as an institution and to institutions in general, right? She really is an institutionalist. Uh but it brings her own views to that. So even so, if you're talking about like the Catholic Church, which she also grew up in, she split from the church on things like gay rights and reproductive rights, while still remaining, you know, a loyal church-going Catholic. And I think uh, her ideology is similar. She's always been inside the party, but she's also moved and pushed the party on a lot of those same issues, on gay rights, on the environment, on, on the war. So some of those times when I think you've really seen her stand up to power are obviously seeking a leadership position in the House. You have to remember when she got to the House in 1987, she was one of 23 women in the entire 435 member House. And when she decided to try to climb that leadership ladder, no woman had ever, and still no other woman has ever led her party in Congress. And she had to go up against the male dominated establishment of, of both parties in the House in order to do that. And there's this moment where, you know, she starts spreading the word that she's going to run for whip starting in 1998. And she would eventually win that contest in 2001. She starts spreading the word that she wants to do this. And what she hears back sort of through the legislative grapevine is that the men in charge are saying, well, who told her she could run? And her response to that was, well, that just fires me up. That just gave her motivation that they were saying that she needed somebody's permission because she didn't believe she needed anybody's permission to do what she felt like she was prepared to do. And then another moment that I would point to is the Iraq war. She was the top Democrat on the intelligence committee at that time. So she'd seen a lot of the secret information that the Bush administration was relying on to build its case for the war. Uh, she comes from an anti-war perspective. She'd also voted against the Gulf war in the nineties, but I think primarily just because she was seeing this evidence and it did not seem sufficient to her for what they were proposing to do, uh, this is at a time when most prominent Democrats were in favor of authorizing Bush to war in Iraq, right? When, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and even the, the Democrats leader in the House, basically her, uh, her superior at that time, uh, Dick Gephardt, they were all in favor of the war resolution and she was actually whipping her colleagues against their leadership. In, uh, in opposition to the war because she thought it was a bad idea. Is this how she brings along folks like um, AOC and more outwardly revolutionary types? Like, is her sort of inner uh, change it from the inside rebel something that they find compelling? That's 
an interesting question. I mean, I think you'd have to ask them. She's obviously had a number of high profile clashes with the squad. The four members of that group mm-hmm. is not a unified caucus, right? They don't always vote as a unit. They don't consider themselves a sort of isolated faction. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're and it's a very small number. And you know, when she made that dismissive comment about them last year, said there are four people and that's how many votes they got, she was speaking literally. And I think her view is whether you're talking about external public opinion or internal uh, in the in the House Democratic Caucus, it's your job to go out and build the support for what you want to accomplish. And if all you can come up with is four votes in the House, you don't really have a very broad base of support for for your point of view. So if so, you know, if you think that some cause, some issue, some uh, some policy is really important, go out there and build support for it. Go out in the public and campaign for it and get people to support you. And that's what's going to move votes in the House. Go to your colleagues in the in the caucus, like as she did with human rights in China back in the 90s. Go lobby your colleagues, make the case to them why you're so passionate about this, why you think it's something that needs to be done. And once you have those votes, you can get something accomplished. Mm -hmm. You talk a little in the book about how, you know, she kind of only gets her due in retrospect. People are like, oh yeah, she was, she was awesome. She did a great job. And, you know, it's kind of been a lagging, uh, lagging recognition for the achievements that she's had. Uh, It seems now that she is experiencing a moment where younger women and a lot of the Democratic base are starting to really appreciate her more than they did before. What does she make of the fact that a lot of young women now are like, oh, gosh, Nancy's Nancy's kind of a badass. You know, I've tried to ask her that question and I have not really gotten an answer. Uh, she just kind of laughs it off. Uh, at one point, you know, there was that there have been a few sort of memeable moments that she's had over the past year. And I totally agree with you that she has suddenly seen this reversal in her image in large part because uh, sort of society has, has caught up to where she's always been in terms of her strength and her assertiveness. Uh but, you know, one of those memeable moments was that meeting that she was in with Trump and numerous other men in the White House where she's wearing the blue suit and she's standing up and she's pointing at the president. And uh, it later came out that what she was saying to him was all roads with you lead to Putin. And then he insulted her and she walked out. Uh, and, and this is another theme of her career that, that when everyone else, she, she's the only woman in a room full of men. And very often when everyone else is sort of looking at their feet and doesn't want to speak up. She's the one who stands up and, and gives it to, in this case, Donald Trump. Anyway, I asked her about that moment and said, isn't it crazy that your image is sort of turned around in this way because that moment had launched a thousand memes. And she said, oh yeah, well, it's great to have a villain. And so she feels like it seems that, you know, just having Trump as a foil is the cause of a lot of all, a lot of that. And I'm sure that's true, but it's also just not something she thinks about a lot. Uh, her image in that regard and where where her mind went when I asked her that question, I thought was really interesting because what she thought was interesting about that picture was she couldn't believe that it was Trump who had published it. It was a White House photo. The White House put it out to try to uh, accuse her of having had like a, a, a hissy fit, I think. And instead, everybody thought she looked really cool. So what was amazing to her was what she said to me was, he just does not know what is in his interest. So she was not really concerned with the sort of symbolism of that moment. She was more concerned with the strategy. And I think that tells you a lot about her mindset. Mm -hmm. Molly, in the stars, they're just like us of it. 
Uh, we have something here at Hysteria called our Sanity Corner, where we talk about what's keeping us sane. What does the speaker do that keeps her sane? Chocolate, mostly. Uh, the, the chocolate ice cream is sort of her, her, her one vice. You know, she doesn't drink coffee. She doesn't drink alcohol. She wears those four-inch heels, as far as I can tell, every time she leaves the house. Uh, and uh, I certainly could not live like that. But, uh, but the fuel, it seems, is chocolate and specifically chocolate ice cream. She always makes time for chocolate ice cream, always has a, a little bowl of chocolates in her office, and, uh, and that's her go-to. Molly, thank you so much. Um, if you listening want to buy the book Pelosi, it is really a delight. And I recommend it as a quarantine read. Uh, Molly Ball from Time. Thank you for stopping by Hysteria today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. When we come back, personal political. Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just lying on your couch, enjoying the fact that your two-year-old child is leaving you alone for five blessed minutes. I love that for Viore. You know what? That seems like a real perk of Viore. (laughs) It is. It's perfect. It's cut perfectly for lying down and just savoring a moment to be left alone. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> five stars no five, comment 100% great that's the type that's my favorite sport the new the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own grab one of these new colors before they sell out and check out the women's daily legging which features a high waist drawstring tie and upgraded no slip fit all things that are absolutely essential in a legging essential uh, I love these leggings they are because you know like not everybody's the same you know so mm-hmm. it's like I need a little bit more room around my booty so I size up a little bit, but then it's usually too big in my waist. And so now I just, just pull that drawstring and I don't show, I don't show any crack when I bend over. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. See, you have your baby and I have my butt crack. (laughs) (laughs) For guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy lined athletic short out there and the men's Sunday performance jogger. Oh my gosh, Alyssa, my brother, who I have given Viore performance gear to. Won an ultra marathon over the holidays. I saw that. That is so incredible. He ran 80 miles in the freezing cold. I don't think he was wearing his Viore core shorts because that would be dangerous. Dangerous. But, but he he loves wearing them to train, and uh, I'm so proud of him. I'm so pr- Viore played a role in his ultra marathon win. <laughs> Uh, plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Welcome back. We've reached the Brady Bunch part of the show where there are three boxes and we're all our faces are in the boxes and we're talking to each other. Alyssa is still with me and I'm going to welcome our third member of the conversation today. It's been a while since we've seen her, but we're very glad that she's here. It is Megan Gailey. 
I haven't seen you since I saw you in person. That was like the last time it was okay. That was the end. <laughs> that was the end. That was the end. <laughs> it was the end of it. The last time you were on the show, it was like the, the last in and we were doing social distancing. We recorded. Yeah, you could still have 10 people in places. And then I think the the shelter from home came out like two days later. Yeah. What a weird time we're living in. I know. I'm really, I know you've touched on it, but I'm really sorry about the wedding. Oh, thanks. We're going to do, I think we're going to just have like a party a year after just because it's like people will still come, right? Absolutely. Of course. And and people will be, you're probably going to end up spending less money and people are going to be so thirsty for your wedding. (laughs) They're going to be so excited. It's no one's, uh, you couldn't find a mad bridesmaid if you tried (laughs) your hardest right now. Everyone's going to be thrilled. Oh yeah. I'm going to just make, you know what? I'm going to go full bridezilla. I'm going to make everybody wear matching outfits to the wedding, not just the wedding party. I'm going to be like, you're all like a cult. You're all showing up wearing floor length lavender gowns, men and women. Perfect. (laughs) Great. Yeah. And then we'll get little lavender masks. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'll bedazzle them. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Wow. This is really coming together. Thanks guys. Um, I, uh, I'm so excited to talk about this topic today. Weddings is one of the areas where there's a ton of advice around it. Um, Mm -hmm. so is literally every aspect of being a woman. I feel like from the time you're a girl, into being a teenager, into being a young adult, into being a full-on adult and sliding into the age where people just start ignoring you. People are constantly just <laughs> giving you advice. And a lot of it is is dumb and bad. Um, I want to talk real quick, Megan. I know that you're like a you're a big NFL fan. I, I just wanted mm-hmm. to bad advice stuff. Um, one of the hallmarks of bad advice is if like the person who's giving it has no idea what they're talking about. Yes, um, yeah. like yesterday I was watching ESPN because I live with a man and, uh, <laughs> on ESPN, they were asking an NFL player if they thought that it was okay to play an NFL season this year. And the NFL player was like, yeah, I think so. We'll all get tested and we're not in the risk. It was like, why are you? I mean, it's, that's not even, it's not only someone who does not have scientific experience to be saying that it's also someone, it's also someone who has millions of dollars invested in it happening. Mm-hmm. So like they're coming at it with an ulterior motive and also no factual knowledge. So it's a double whammy of bad advice, but the NFL is the least woke of all the leagues. <laughs> and I think they're going full steam ahead. God, I don't think they're, but states won't let them. New York will not let I, them play. Yeah. California well, will not let them play. Like any state so, with a Democratic governor is not going to let them play. And so a lot of coaches and and GMs and people, because the GMs were really mad about the draft. They were like, what if my Wi-Fi cuts out? And it was like, let us see your offices and your kids and your dogs. Okay, let us in. But now a lot of coaches are like, okay, you can get into practice facilities in XYZ states, but in the Rams, they're not going to be able to get in anywhere for the next three months. And so they're starting to complain and, and you can tell the sports pundits are like, whatever, it's not going to be fair. We're going to have it anyways. Like (laughs) they just don't care. They don't care. I mean, it's, it's like also people, I think, and this plays into the bad advice thing too. People are much more willing to listen if you're telling them something they already want to hear 
Yeah. And that is, I think one reason that bad advice is so rampant is because people are way more like way more open-minded about something that confirms what they already want. And they're way less open-minded about being confronted with something that is actually not going to make them feel good. Um, Alyssa, I feel like you, okay. So you've written two books and in both books, there's, I wouldn't say like hard advice because it's like advice ish lessons, lessons, right. You've been around people giving advice, people wanting advice. What is the worst advice you've ever received? So when I graduated college, uh, couldn't get a job, had to go to a headhunter in New York. And uh, it turned out the only thing they thought I was qualified to do was to become a paralegal. And I went into the first two interviews and did not get offers. And the headhunter was like, here's the thing. You really should lean into how fast you can type. I was like, really? It's like, yeah, you should really lean into how fast you can type. He's like, I think that that is, uh, it's going to be helpful. So I go into this next interview and it was the only interview with a woman. She was a partner at the firm and I'm interviewing with her and she's like, what do you have to say for your skills? And I was like, I'm very good at typing. She was like, don't ever say that again. And I was like, I thought so too. Why shouldn't I? And she's like, because if you tell people you can type, it's all they're going to ever ask you to do. So the moral of that story is from the worst advice, I got some of the best advice. So it was a real, it was a positive arc. Okay. That's good. That's good. Megan, how about you? What's your worst advice? As I was like thinking about this, I, I realized that I'm really kind of hippy dippy on this subject. And at some point in my life at a very young age, I learned that I was really going to do whatever I wanted. Um, and so I remember it was advice from men and it was professional advice in both of these instances. Once a man told me, and this wasn't advice, but it was sort of like you messed up. He said, I should have stayed in Indiana and my career would be so much further. In Indiana? (laughs) Yes. Indiana, (laughs) the hub of entertainment. (laughs) And like, I was living in Chicago at the time. So I wasn't in New York or LA, but like Chicago to to Indiana is so drastically different stand up and creatively wise. And then I was opening for a man once and he did not like the way I was dressing on stage. I would wear dresses and I would dress up or I would just try and look really nice. Like I was going to a job interview almost, but like sluttier, I guess, but not super (laughs) slutty, just like fun. Like if I was going out on the town and he was like, you should not dress like that. People don't want to see a woman who looks good telling jokes on stage. And, and what's sad is that I know that there's still people that think that because I see really beautiful girls and cool women that then are like in those baseball tees on stage. And it's like, I know you don't dress this way, but you're dressing in a way that someone has told you will be more accessible for people to laugh at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting. Anytime anybody, the thing is like people should, you should pretty much just dress how you want in almost any circumstance, unless it's wildly like inappropriate, like on a, on a etiquette level, like don't wear a bikini to a wake unless the it's a bikinis only wake or whatever. But (laughs) like, if you try to pretend to be somebody else in any way, it really shows like there's no way to hide who you really are. Especially in something like stand up where you're 
truly trying to, I think, present your genuine self. And, mm -hmm. and he was so wrong. And it makes me so happy because I've seen this man since. And he's like, remember what I told you? And it's like, yeah, that's actually, that would have ruined my quote unquote brand. Like I am now, people are like, what are you going to wear? Like whenever I do anything on TV, it's show us the outfit. Like that is what, and I love that. And, and he would have totally taken that out of my career. Mm -hmm. I can't think of like a specific piece of advice that I'm like, wow, that was really bad. But there is one piece of advice that I've gotten over and over again, that it just doesn't work for me. And that's like the idea of having a five-year plan that oh, God. doesn't, oh, it, it, that. it doesn't work for me. Like I have to have, if I, if I'm trying to like set goals, I have to have like a crazy goal, which is like, if everything went perfectly and I got the chance to do it, it would make, I would cry if I was able to do it. And then I have like something realistic that I would like to do. And then I have like what I'm trying to do till the end of the year, but like, like a five-year plan, like, I don't know. Isn't your, doesn't your body totally change? Don't you have like totally new cells every seven years? I don't know. I'm yes. going to be like five sevenths of a new person in five years. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like a, a lot of this and, and, and that's why in some ways I think there isn't bad advice is because a five-year plan, then you're locked into something and you're like, I got to do da, 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 da. And sometimes the mistakes and taking those weird detours or going off and just be being open to those changes is what ends up putting you on a trajectory to actually accomplish goals you have. Right. Sometimes the path isn't straight. It's like when you have the five-year plan, either you have been successful or you have failed. Mm -hmm. right? When if, if you just have some ideas, I mean, look, I'm a terrible person to talk about this because I'm, you want to talk hippy dippy. I'm like fucking Janet from another planet. I'm just like, what will be, will be case or us It's all going to work out fine. What's meant to happen will happen. So the one thing about advice is that almost all unsolicited advice is fucking bad. Uh, because, huh. right. I mean, like that's yeah. the, like, if I've gone to someone, I think that my thing is like, I, have, I don't have many memories of bad advice that I sought out and people gave me bad advice in return. It's more like mm -hmm. someone came to me and was like, you know what you should do. And mm -hmm. uh, usually it's terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. People keep telling me to watch the wire and I'm just not going to do it. You know what? It's not you. The thing is, if you haven't gotten to it in quarantine, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to watch Breaking Bad when I'm on bed rest. I'm sure I'll be on bed rest someday. And I'm now in quarantine and I have not watched Breaking Bad and it's just not going to happen. And that's okay. <laughs> I haven't watched Breaking Bad or The Wire, but yeah. I have watched, I've watched The Mindy Project five times. Yeah. <laughs> unsolicited advice. I had an instance recently where someone who gave me unsolicited advice was coming to me for an unsolicited favor. And I was like, no, I remember the bad advice you gave me. Why would I help you? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like, I think breaking down what bad advice is, is like helpful in avoiding it. And like, yeah, most of the time when people come to you with advice and it's unsolicited, most of the time anybody comes to me with anything unsolicited, I, I have to think like, okay, well, why are what is happening in their lives that they are doing this to me right now? Because most of the way that people treat you is because of something that's going on inside of them. They're not, they're, they're not really that focused on you. They're focused on themselves. So why do you feel the need to do this? And usually it's like, oh, this person is feeling powerless or this person is probably feeling 
like, um, this person is probably feeling like they're ignored in a lot of places, or this person is probably feeling like I have something that they deserve or, you know, like, and so usually it's just easy to ignore because it's like, oh, you're just saying this to me because you need to hear yourself say it, not because mm-hmm. I need to hear mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had this one, oh my gosh, I had this one experience once. Uh, it's a long story, but I was on hallucinogens and I encountered... <laughs> I, awesome. I, and I was in Las Vegas. It was for work. I was on hallucinogenic. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. And I encountered this woman who I had worked with in the past who we had like a sort of our work relationship kind of ended badly. And, mm-hmm. uh, she came up to me and she's like, Oh my God, I heard you're on acid. And I was like, I am it's for work. And she's like, well, uh, now that I'm supervising all these people, I can't do that. And when you move up, you're not going to be able to, you know, fuck around anymore oh, either. Gosh. And I was like, it was one of those things where I was like, Oh, because I was on acid and I was really cool at that moment, instead of like neurotic and self-loathing, I was like, you're in my head. I was like, she's saying this to me because she needs to hear herself say it. She needs to hear herself tell herself that she's important. She needs to hear herself establish that she's more important than me. She needs to. And she also sounds like she wants to be on acid. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> like, you're jealous. No, get on the train sister. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, I think that sometimes when you have somebody come to you with a piece of advice, it, it, that's like bad. It's like, you just need, you just need to hear yourself say this. I have seen a friend, I I have never had the confidence to do this, but I have seen a drunk person tell a friend advice and my friend go, I think you're talking about yourself. <laughs> and like, ju- and the person was so drunk that like, they just kept repeating, like, they'd be like, you need to just like, love your body. And my friend was like, I think you're talking about yourself. <laughs> Every single thing they would say, she would like dish it back. And I'm like, that's so powerful, but also bold. That's extremely to, like, bold. Say to someone. I mean, that's something that could end up with like drink. That's like a drink and face initiator. You know, if you're talking to it, like a really drunk person and they're maybe not totally in control of themselves, like that seems like something that maybe could result in you getting a drink in your face. But that is a great thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Alyssa, have you ever given bad advice? I have to be honest. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure someone listening, I'm sure someone listening is gonna, is gonna, um, who I know is going to be like, you dumb asshole. This is what you told me. No, but I think that one, I don't almost ever give unsolicited advice. Almost. I mean, I, I actually can only think of one time when I was in the white house and I told one of the women who worked for me to wear, um, dresses with a bit more structure because they were just like, they kind of fell side, you know, they fell off sometimes in like awkward ways Um, but like, she actually really like embraced that and was like, you know what? You're right. And it wasn't like shaming her. I mean, it was literally like technical things with would happen. And so, uh, I'm sure she, she may be listening and she'll be like, you were right, but still fuck you. So that's, but other than that, but it's like, it's true. I think of it. I try to only give advice when people specifically ask me for a specific thing. And then I try to make sure it's, I'm talking about them, not me. Exactly like what you guys mm-hmm. were saying, because mm-hmm. sometimes like there's something that's good for me that's not good for the person who's asking me. So I try not to project. Mm-hmm. Megan, how about you? I'm, I'm 1000% certain I've given bad advice. Um, I, 
I, I try not to now, but I do think in high school, college, like in my younger years, I'm sure I gave really bad relationship advice because I didn't have, <laughs> I had never had a serious boyfriend until like later in my twenties, but I was doling out, you should do this. You should do that. When I was 19 years old, having never been loved or had sex or <laughs> done anything, but was like, I know what you should do. But then when it comes to, I mean, I mean, in that sort of like that thing of like, is there any bad advice? I'm sure these people ended up with the people they're supposed to be with. And these are relationships that were like silly in the first place. But when it comes to professional advice now, it's, and like, people will be like, can I, can I take you to coffee? And and they want it, advice in like a, in the creative world. And that's so hard to give because everyone's path is so very, very different that I just started giving the advice to people of like, have sex with whoever you want. (laughs) I'm like, work hard, make sure you're like going to open mics, find a friend that you can do stand up with that you can celebrate each other's successes and bounce ideas off of and have sex with whoever you want. And that's like the, that's it. That's really the Megan Gailey, how to succeed in business without really trying. (laughs) I think when you come to somebody asking for relationship advice, you usually, you know, the answer, like you, you, there are very rare situations where I've come to somebody for advice. Usually it is, I know the answer, but I don't want that to be the answer. So I want somebody to tell me the other thing, you know, like I just want, yeah. and so, and sometimes just trying to be like a good friend, if somebody comes to me with relationship advice and the answer is like, this guy sucks. Like, yeah. but it's, you can't, <laughs> but you can't say no. that to somebody because it also like ends up being a roundabout insult to them because it's, yeah, he might suck, but it's the person that they picked that they love that's driving them crazy. Like it, it just, I think asking a friend for relationship advice is very dangerous territory because a lot of times yeah. they don't have good advice. Well, and there's such a thin line between venting and, and advice because sometimes, and you see this on reality shows a lot too, they'll like, they'll come and they'll talk shit about their husband or their boyfriend. And then it's used against them. And it's like, Oh man, I was just trying to say these issues that I had. And, and it turns into unsolicited advice a lot of times, Mm -hmm. but it's so hard. And you also are bringing to it what you think about the partner. It's just really, do you know what the greatest example of that is on television ever? when Carrie is about to get married to big Uh and Miranda is like, I don't know why you're getting married. I don't know why anyone would do this because she just had a fight with Steve. She was venting, but it ended up being a whole like subplot to the movie, which I found very stressful because I knew it was terrible. It's really, Oh, it's so that. Yeah, you're right. That's unintended advice. Venting taken as unintended advice. God, that movie sucks. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Do you know how many times I casually left on the scene where uh, Carrie beats Big with the bouquet? 
yes. in front of my husband before we got married. And I'm like, what a terrible person he is. <laughs> what a terrible thing to have happen. He was like, why do you keep showing this? It's a terrible, depressing scene. I was like, no, I just want to make sure it sinks in. <laughs> I, I, uh, that movie to me is perfection. <laughs> I agree with you. I love everything about it, except Carrie and Miranda being upset at each other. Yeah. Oh, but God. then they, ha- uh, even that New Year's Eve scene, I like cry every time I see it. That rendition of nah, nah, terrible. Nah, nah. When you think about it, the series <laughs> Sex in the City is nothing but like 10 seasons of bad advice. <laughs> 100%. But I was just actually, as we were like sitting here talking about the relationship vice, he's just not that into you, is actually in the, it's very tough th- thing to it's hear. Tough love, but it's fucking but it, real. But it is actually the reality in a lot more situations than I would like to admit. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that movie like a hundred times too. They made a movie out of a line from Sex and the City. That's how culturally important that show was. Well, because then it was a book. I read the book. But like that, I mean, that was advice and I wasn't taking it. I've chased so many men that weren't. Because we're all just seeking advice to tell us and affirm what we really want to believe. Mm-hmm. So it's all just bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's although there's, there's some like advice that people just dish out that is sometimes related to relationships, but sometimes more general that I think is pretty bad, widely given advice. Like I think telling somebody to just keep going no matter what is really bad advice. Uh, another you're one, allowed to quit. You're allowed. Mm-hmm. You can quit. And also, if you keep going, no matter like continuing to go when you are in pain can cause like a physical injury. Like if your knee hurts and you're running, you should stop running because you could really, really hurt your knee. If you're like trying to work on something with your brain and it is giving you emotional pain, don't keep doing it. like stop it for a little bit. Give yourself a rest. Let yourself have space to breathe and regroup and not because you're going to hurt yourself. Like you're going to traumatize yourself mm-hmm. if you keep working on something that is just like causing you pain. Another thing, another one that I, I guess remember no fear shirts in the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. They always had these, like, they always had really fucking bad advice on them. Like pain is weakness, leaving the body. No, it's not. It's your body. It's actually not. It's pain. <laughs> it's, no. It's your joints giving in. It's weakness <laughs> entering the body. You need to stop. I mean, if you are seeking <laughs> advice at a t-shirt shop in Myrtle Beach, you are doomed anyways. <laughs> Second place is a first loser, Megan. Yeah. I, I, like, as I was thinking about this topic too, I was thinking about sort of the evolution of who I take advice from. Like as a child, I would take, and even into, you know, now I would, I would take advice from my parents and, and listen to them and my brothers and like my close family. But now as I am an adult, I find myself giving my parents advice so much more than I'm even receiving advice from them now. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's like kind of crazy and it makes you feel old, but also powerful. And also, oh my God, my parents are human and also kind of on an island of like, well, if, I, if I'm now giving advice to my parents, who am I giving advice from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Aly- Alyssa, have you ever given advice to your parents? And did that make you feel weird at all? they didn't want to hear it. Like it wasn't, you know what? It wasn't even advice. It's like just trying to talk to them. I mean, like, you know, 
they don't listen to the podcast, but my mom's students do. And so, you know, they're just, it's like, I just try to tell them things and they're like, who are you to try to tell us anything? And it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> I just don't push it. Cause it's not that important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember the first time I gave advice to my mom, it felt very like, I felt very grown up, but I also felt very unmoored because I was like, oh, fuck. oh, fuck. Yeah, she's not she's not like my mommy anymore. Like, I'm driving the ship. I'm the captain. Yeah. No, I'm the mommy now. I'm everybody. I'm everybody's mom. Um, yeah, it's it's like uh, it's hard to also another thing is like my mom and dad got together when they were um, like kids. My mom was like mm-hmm. 17 and my dad was, I think, 20. And, uh, then they got married and sometimes my mom will try to give me relationship advice. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. what do you know about like a few years ago when I was like single and she'd give me advice about meeting someone and be like, mom, what do you know about dating in your thirties? <laughs> like, what are you talking <laughs> But you know, she tries, um, let's talk about good advice. Like just because we've, you know, we've talked about bad advice. Let's talk about the best piece of advice that we've each received. I think it's commencement time. A lot of people that normally oh, would be yes. having commencement ceremonies are not getting commencement ceremonies. They're just getting emails about the fact that they're done with college. So what's some good advice that you would give to people of any age? I really have one sort of one piece of advice that was given to me that was sort of like, pew, Um, And that was many, many years ago uh, when we were working in the West Wing and these girls had a blog that criticized what women in the West Wing would wear. And one day in particular, they took aim at myself and Nancy and DeParle saying that we were basically shaming Barack Obama and that he was a terrible president because he let us dress the way that we dress, which by the way, was just in flat shoes. And I was like really down in the dumps. I was really down in the dumps. I was bummed. Like the one thing that we ever didn't want to do was like bring shame on the first black president. And so he's like, Hey you, what's wrong? And I was like, nothing. He's like, no, like something's wrong. You have a look on your face, which is pretty true. And I was like, well, these girls, they say that we dress bad and we're shaming you. And he's like, you dress however you feel comfortable. I have literally done it every day since. Like, like I have not put Spanx on. I don't give a shit if people are like, oh, you're wearing Birkenstocks again. Fuck that shit. I am most productive when I feel good and I'm comfortable. So here I am in my Led Zeppelin sweatshirt. <laughs> that's an awesome sweatshirt. I mean, thank that's you. Gr- I love that your best advice came from Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, I, I like know. Can't, can't top that. <laughs> I mean, it was a moment. Mine is going to be from like my friend who's a pothead. Um, Yeah, I think the best advice I ever got, and it was from a lot of different people, and maybe that's how I needed it from a lot of different people, is at some point in my life, probably around 20, I had multiple people in my life be like, you have to do stand-up. And I had never, I did not even know stand-up was like a profession. I just, I I was like, I want to be a sports reporter. That is like, I want to be on the sidelines. That is what I want to do. And I worked in that for a summer and loved it. And all my bosses there, they were like, you, we will name the intern hall of fame after you. You are an amazing <laughs> intern. You should not be in this industry. Like you just, you're just, you want to say things that are beyond stats and beyond like, standing on a sideline. Not that that's like, that's an incredible 
job and, and an incredible path for people, but they were like, you want to talk as yourself and you should pursue what that is. You and just I'm had like, more to say. I had more to say. I had more to say. You can't say shit on NBC. <laughs> so they were like, you got to get on cable, girl. You are not <laughs> for broadcast. Sure. And you did it. You're on cable now. Well, you were on cable. But, I saw your stand-up special was on cable. Yeah. But it was really hard to hear like this thing that you thought was your path. Someone who you trust and respect telling you this is not your path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is hard. And sometimes that's the best advice. But sometimes Yuck. the aftermath of getting it is that you are mad at the person who gave it to you for a little bit. <laughs> um, best advice I ever got is something that I definitely don't adhere to all the time, but I know deep in my heart that it is good advice. Um, my dad is a very calm guy. Like he doesn't yell really like it, he yells at Vikings games, but he doesn't really yell otherwise. And he told me one time that whoever yells first in an argument is losing and like he does it, he, he would do this thing when I would be like getting angry because I can be a little bit more prone to yelling than my father. And uh, I would be getting angry and like arguing with him when I was a teenager and my voice would be raising and he would be lowering his voice commensurately. And so we would get to a point where I was like yelling and he was barely talking above a whisper. And whoever yells <laughs> first loses has has like really helped me like just keep your emotions in check when you want to get something done or you're trying to get a point across. Like that's, I think, good advice all around. Even though I yell a lot, it's still- Yeah, that's tough advice. So I'm going to take it on and see if I can try to. <laughs> it's not even, it's like being chased by a bear. Like you don't have to be the fastest right. runner in the world. You just have to be faster than the other person. So you just have to be more in control of your emotions than the other person. Then you win. With a bear, aren't you supposed to like freeze or no, something? No, 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 no. I'm just saying knows. like in an argument- <laughs> It's like in, in the argument, whoever yells first loses. You just have yeah. to be more in control than the person you're arguing yeah. with. You don't have to be like, you don't have to be a Zen master. I'm going to freeze. Whenever I'm in an argument now, I'm going to go, they can't see me. And <laughs> when we're interacting in person again, do you think people are going to result, result to like, or resort to uh, Zoom tricks? Like they want to leave the meeting. They'll just go. I think we're going to be a mess. <laughs> I think we're going to be an absolute mess. We're, I'm not ready. I'm not, I need to be like re acclimated to society, like a wild animal. <laughs> well, I'm sure that there will be plenty of advice and most of it will be bad around how to do that. <laughs> uh, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to do our sanity corners. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the right to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Okay. 
Okay, before we get to Sanity Corner, a little bit of housekeeping. Since March, Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund has raised over $2 million to support organizations at the front lines of the crisis. Thank you so much for your support. Now that it's crossed the $2 million mark, we've selected some new groups to support in order to help underserved communities get the resources they need during this time, including World Central Kitchen, Masks for the People, One Fair Wage, and more. The fund spreads your donations equally to groups providing food, healthcare support, PPE, and relief to those hit hardest by the crisis. You can make a donation at crooked.com slash coronavirus. Thanks again. And we're back. We've reached the part of the show where we are talking about the ways we're staying sane during this very weird time in history. It's Sanity Corner. First up, we have a very special Sanity Corner this week from the mother of one of our panelists. It is Michaela Watkins' mom with her Sanity Corner. What do you do for Sanity? What do I do for sanity? Well, I have my puppy. She's not really a puppy. She's three years old, but she's very small. So I um, spend a lot of time with the puppy and I walk her. I'm also doing a beast of a 2,000-piece puzzle. Um, probably half done. I've got a, a lot of it done with about 10 different islands in the middle of it of different colors and different things, and I'll eventually have to kind of knit them all together. But I can't sit and do it. I just have to um, walk by, put in a couple of pieces, and then keep going, or I'd spend all my time doing that. I also have been doing cooking, and I've been doing cleaning up, so in case I die, my kids won't get left with the mess of things that they don't know what to do with. Um, I have made photo albums. I have, uh, what else do I do? I talk to my old friends. That's the most fun. Well, thank you for raising Michaela and making her the wonderful woman that we all know. And uh, now let's get to our sanity corners. First off, uh, Alyssa, do you want to go first? Sure, guys. Uh, my sanity corner this week was watching Grease for Hysteria Movie Club. Because Woo! you know what? It's some problematic but joyful shit. And I can do hand jive, so please watch Instagram. Yeah. Agree. Uh, Instagram and on Crooked Media's YouTube channel, and it posts on Sundays. You can find it on Sundays at youtube.com slash crooked media. Yeah, we're about to get into Greece, and this is going to be a fun one. Um, I'll, I'll go next. So before the, you know, in the before times, um, I wanted to watch Homeland, but it was like eight seasons of a show. It was just daunting. It was like, I'm not going to, there's too much to catch up with. I don't think I'm ever going to watch Homeland. But then lockdown started and I started watching Homeland and I've been binging it and I'm in season, I'm halfway through season three now. Mm. And it is a ridiculous show where too much stuff happens. Um, but it's so addicting and good and so well plotted out and mm -hmm. so like, even though Carrie, uh, Claire Danes plays a, a character named Carrie, even though Carrie can be very irritating and over the top, it is well acted and it's a really good looking show. It's, I, mm -hmm. I, I really am for it. I've, I've been sanity cornering Homeland for the last few weeks and, and I recommend it. I w loved Homeland was very big fan. I eventually had to drop off on that and House of Cards once um, 
Trump was elected because I would watch those shows and be like, they have a better president than we have in real life. And it made me too sad to continue. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward now. I'm looking forward to a time when we have a different president, a better president. I mean, we could literally elect. It's aspirational TV now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to it after November. We're going to, we're going to have a better one. Megan, do you want to go? Yeah. So my sanity corner, I'm guessing no one has said this yet, is The Last Dance. We were talking about it a bit off air before. It's not a perfect documentary, but it is deaf. And I hated Michael Jordan, like hated this man my entire life. We had the same birthday. I was like so against him. And now I'm watching this documentary and I'm like, he's funny. He's hot. He's charming. He's great. People say he's mean. Guess what? I'm mean too. We're mean in the same way. So I'm really loving it. I'm sad that this is the last weekend. And I know this weekend he's going to beat my beloved Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. And it's going to be tough. But I'm loving that. And also the Origins podcast. Alyssa, I think you would like it. He does. He has a whole season about sex in the city and every single one of them, minus Kim Cattrall, um, is interviewed and talks about the inception and the arc of how, like the fashion. And it's just really fun. I listen to it while I'm cooking and it's great. I am writing that down. The last dance is so fun. <laughs> like I was saying, I think like, look, yes, it is not a perfect documentary, um, but Right now, what America needs is footage of the 90s Bulls played over 90s hip hop back when everything was better, but we didn't know it. Everything was better except fashion because everybody was wearing brown all the time. Ooh, Every, bad fashion. Brown ties and brown suits and, and it just, you know, brown headbands on the women. And it just never, it wasn't quite, wasn't quite working for me fashion wise. But the night, it's just like such a dip into 90s nostalgia like I, I yearn to be in Chicago in 1992, like viscer. I like, I want to be there. It's a, uh, it's such a fun, such a fun place to like be and escape to mm-hmm. for a little bit. Um, okay. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks to Molly Ball for talking to us about her new book, Pelosi. Thanks to Alyssa Mastromonaco and Megan Gailey. And thanks to all of you for listening. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadina Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Peace.